Hey, I'm Jordan. And I'm Ashley. We're the founders of For the Good, a community created to empower and elevate you to live a purpose-driven life. Our mission is to bring light into our world, and to do so, we have learned that it must start with it. We are so glad to have you here with us. We have a special guest joining us today, my friend Ken Daniels. He is the play-by-play announcer for the Detroit Red Wings and founder of the Jamie Daniels Foundation. I've had the honor of hearing Ken's story in person. It is one that is much needed to bring education and awareness to addiction and how we can end the stigma related to it. Ken, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to you both for having me. It's a uh, it's much needed discussion that uh, you two are presenting so well. Well, thank you very much. And, and we'd really love for you to share your story with us and how you started by finding your way to the Red Wings. Well, that's a long story that uh, I'll try to condense many years, but uh, it started at the age of 10, but I won't go through every month from those years on. But uh, from the age of 10, I put a, when my parents sent me to bed early, because you could do that and just get those kids out of the room. And I'd uh, take my yellow Panasonic transistor radio that I still have in my office uh, underneath my pillow and listen to Foster Hewitt or, or scroll the dial and uh, listen to Dan Kelly, the Camo X in St. Louis. So as I say, I, I literally dreamed my job because I'd fall asleep listening to hockey. Yeah. And it was just always uh, fascinating to me. And really, I only started playing in Toronto growing up probably the age of eight or nine, not like today, kids or, or my late son when he was on skates at the age of three. Didn't start till later, but I picked it up really quickly, just always fascinated with the game and then started doing some high school announcements while playing for the high school hockey team over the PA system at Forest Hill Collegiate in Toronto, where Lauren Michaels, the Saturday Night Live producer, also graduated from and um, played high school hockey for Mike Keenan, who was a Stanley Cup winning coach with the New York Rangers and just always wanted to be in broadcasting, did a cable television show. So worked at some of that. And at age 17, uh, just prior to graduating high school, I wrote Brian Williams of CBC television in Canada, the premier sportscaster, a letter. And he said, well, call me whenever you want, come down, watch me do some sports, come to the studio. I did. And then some, um, I guess really eight years later, he went to national sports and I replaced him after some time in radio just outside Toronto and overnight news and sports in Toronto, again, all just by calling people, all just by bugging people. Didn't go to school for it. Got a BA in English sociology uh, and psychology, um, you know, do whatever I could just to get a Bachelor of Arts degree, show my time in school. And then some eight years or so after I wrote Brian Williams a letter, I replaced him at, at local television when he went to network sports. So I replaced him in the same office where he worked, where I went to visit as a 17-year-old, so dreams do come true. And then a year later, later when he went on assignment for national sports, I replaced Brian doing... Uh, uh, national sports as well. So a long time at CBC and then out of luck, I'm really condensing this best I can, uh, working at an all sports radio station while doing television. Uh, they needed a play-by-play guy to fill in for Maple Leafs radio. And I'd never done play-by-play of the NHL before. I'd done uh, an Olympics game in 88 in Seoul. So I'd done, uh, I'd done track uh, velodrome racing, um, bike racing on, um, on the road racing. And I'd done baseball, et cetera, um, canoeing, kayaking, all that stuff, Olympic sports. And the program director said, you can do it all. I need a replacement for uh, Maple Leafs radio tomorrow night. And I said, Alan, his name was Alan Davis. I said, I'm moving tomorrow. I bought a house. And he said, find someone else to move your ottoman. And not in such kind terms did he say it. You're doing Maple Leafs hockey. 
So as nervous as I was, I thought, okay, I've done play-by-play, I've done TV, I've done radio. So as I say in life, luck, there's no, no such thing as luck. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So the opportunity was there. Was I lucky to be in the right place, right time, had someone who had confidence in me? Sure. But you're not going to take and seize that job unless everything you've done up until that time has prepared you for it like anything else in life. So I was okay. I was capable. I knew I could do this because I prepared everything I'd done. So I said, okay, I had some friends move my ottoman and all my furniture. I did Maple Leafs hockey. The next year they offered me 15 games and then 15 more the next year on radio. And then someone I met along that road of doing radio had gone to TV with Hockey Night in Canada and said, I want to take you off play-by-play radio. I want to bring you to Hockey Night in Canada on CBC television. So there you go. And then years later, I applied for the Red Wing job and it was open. So that's the the nuts and bolts in about four minutes. You came to Detroit in 97, 98. Was that the first year that you were here? Yes, the year after, correct. The year after they won the first cup to break the drought, correct. So you saw the second one right off the bat. I was part of the second cup. And and the reason why I even got the job in Detroit, and I was fine with Hockey Night in Canada, and they gave me some prime playoff series the, the 96, 97 season. And yeah, that season got a prime playoff series in Ottawa, Buffalo, first round won seven games. And then in the second round was doing Buffalo, Philadelphia in Buffalo. And Dave Strader, who had worked many years in Detroit and has since passed away and what a wonderful man. He came into the broadcast booth and said, Ken, Mickey Redmond wants me to let you know they're going to be replacing the guy in Detroit who'd only been there one year who had replaced Dave. And he, Mickey said, I knew Mickey a little bit. And he said, Mickey would... Uh, like me to let you know to apply for the job. So I thought, okay, that's a, that's a good in. So I, I left the broadcast booth uh, in Buffalo, didn't have a, my cell phone with me, but there was a payphone. And for kids who don't know what a payphone is, you can Google it. But uh, there was actually a payphone in the broadcast booth in Buffalo that is still there. And just last year, Mickey and I finally took a picture in front of it together, <laughs> posterity, um, called my agent at that payphone. And I said, there's a job opening in Detroit. So I'd like uh, you to get some tapes together if you can send them off. He did. And sure enough, uh, although I applied and went down to interview about a month and a half later, didn't get the job until about four months later, right before the season started. Because at that time, I hadn't heard from the Red Wings and I agreed to stay with Hockey Night in Canada. And on a handshake deal, uh, this was the September of 97 now. And they had just come off a cup, so and they had the tragic accident with Vladdy and Sergey. Um, so they weren't really worried about hiring a play-by-play guy, and I knew that. And I had a handshake deal with John Shannon, the hockey night, to stay with him. And uh, then the Red Wings finally called and said, what do you need? And I told him, went back and forth. And then I had to call John Shannon, the exec producer of Hockey Night in Canada. And I was in tears because you're moving a young family. Um, my son was three. My, my daughter was pretty much a newborn at the time, and you're moving. And I thought, boy, I was scared. And John said, you know, I can probably only give you 27 weeks, meaning 27 Saturday nights at Hockey Night in Canada. You go to the Red Wings, you're going to get 80 games a year, and you're going to get better. And you've got to go to get better. And it wasn't so much the money, although the money was better. Although it was funny, someone said to me when I was negotiating the deal, they said, do you know you're in Canada and you're coming to the United States, we're paying you in U.S. dollars? which the dollar was much greater than it was in Canada. And I said, yes. And do you know I'm living on those U.S. dollars? I'm not banking them and going back to Canada to use them there. <laughs> so it wasn't quite the negotiating plea that they maybe yeah. thought it was. So at any rate, I wound up taking the deal, and that's how I wound up in Detroit. And uh, I've loved every minute of it and working with Mickey Redmond now. 23 years we've been together, the longest broadcast duo currently on television in the National Hockey League, and it's like a marriage. Actually, I've been with Mickey longer than my 
two marriages combined says something. So every time Mickey walks into the gondola and he says, uh, Kenny boy, it's like he's saying, honey, I'm home. So we get along greatly and it's a, it's a wonderful partnership. And even through this coronavirus and everything else, this whole episode that's taken this world on in a whole new path, um, we check in every day with each other. So it's a great relationship and it, it is like a marriage. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I know Jordan is a big hockey fan, so he could sit here all day just chatting with yeah. you about the wings and the journey that you've had that'll along be, the way. That'll be yeah. for another day. But uh, just <laughs> okay, you can call me later. You can call yeah, me later. We're, we're gonna talk after. But uh, <laughs> okay. the one thing I would say, just summing up, I know listening to you before, I think we had the same idol growing up. I'm a Bobby Orr guy, and I'm a huge. Oh fan. yeah. So. Well, I, I could show you, if uh, you know, I know through Zoom and everything else, I got a Bobby Orr shelf there, and I had a, I had a Bobby Orr stick. Uh, I had a lot of collections of sticks, and Bobby Orr was a prime, and somebody offered me a lot of money for it, and I finally did sell it. It was uh, after my son passed away because I was saving all of my collection for Jamie, including my cup rings, which my daughter will now get, but um, I was saving all the sticks that I had from Bobby Orr to, to Bobby Hull, everybody, all the greats, Bernie Perron, all my idols. Bobby was my idol of all idols, and I've met him many times, and he is so great to meet in person as he is just to know about. And um, I sold it, and that was before I knew that I had started the Jamie Daniels Foundation, which is a, a big regret of mine because I wish I'd held on to all that and um, sold it um, at our auction which raised a lot of money last September. And who knows whether we can do one this year. If not, we'll put it off for a year. But I'm starting to collect other stuff to move. But Bobby Orr was, uh, would have gone for a lot of money. I sold it for a lot of money, but it would have gone to a better cause if I held on to it. I'm just starting my collection now. I got his, uh, the goal framed right above me. It always so says, do I. I got it right over here. I'm looking at it. Except <laughs> mine's signed to me. Is yours signed? <laughs> no, it's not. You don't got to rub it in. Uh, <laughs> All right, I'll see what I'll see what I can do. Maybe you can get a sign. I'll yeah. see what I can do. That's, uh, that's okay. my bucket list item is to to meet him and just shake his hand. So, yeah, he's a good man. We we actually run into Bobby when we're down in Florida, because he still is in the agency business with uh, Rick Kern and Jeff Jackson and the Bobby Orr group and and who he works with. And sometimes he'll be at a Panthers game. And whenever I go to a Panthers game, I always look way down on my left press box just to see if Bobby's there to go over to say hello. Yeah, well, I'll just keep it in mind to keep my uh, jersey with me if I ever get around you, just in case he shows up. Yep, you got it. All right, so you did share a little bit more about the Jamie Daniels Foundation. Can you get in a little bit more detail about how that came to be and your family story? Well, my family story, we lost Jamie on December 7th of 2016 to an opioid overdose. He had been uh, struggling for years. I believe it started with Adderall, which uh, to me is just a, an awful drug. I know some need it. Um, for ADD, ADHD, uh, Jamie felt he had that, went to a, a doctor who prescribed it to him and years later told us that he had faked the test to get the Adderall because he felt he needed more time on exams. Jamie graduated from Michigan State with a 3.5 but started on Adderall through high school and then when you get to university, Adderall becomes the drug to sell um, for what you might need. And then when opioids become too expensive, you move to heroin. But when and then heroin gets laced with fentanyl and then you die. And um, and that's what happened to Jamie. But when Jamie was in his freshman year at Michigan State, um, a kid turned him on to uh, just opioids, you know, probably taken from a parent's medicine cabinet because they're too readily available, which we have to dispose of properly. That's another story that, that has to be uh, more well told because it's too easy to get. And uh, when that Jamie tried them within five days, he was hooked because that friend called me after Jamie passed and three months later. I'll never forget, I was in Florida with the Red Wings and phone rang from a number I didn't recognize and it was uh, an acquaintance of his from 
from college who told me he was the one who started him on that path and wanted my forgiveness. And, uh, and Jamie was hooked, although still graduated with a 3-5 from Michigan State. Kept on using. We had no one, took his car away, did all those things that parents do, keep him in the house, you know, but you're still around your peer group. Uh, addicts don't want to be addicts, but boy, an addict can lie. An addict can look straight if he wants to be, if he wants something. And, you know, Jamie told me in the end how much money he stole from me just to get the drugs, not that he wanted to until finally one day after he'd hurt his uh, hand as an instructor up at his summer camp and they had given him pills and he was so distraught, he called and said, Dad, I need to go to rehab. And those were the greatest words of father or his mother um, could ever hear. And he did. Went to rehab here in Michigan, wasn't a great spot. They basically released him and say, you know, find a therapist. So that didn't sit well with us. And sure enough, within 10 days after I had my son back and we laughed and we lived again because he'd been clean. He'd been through not 30 days like he should have been, but at least 11 days of detox, which, as he said, it's the most painful thing in the world. Dad, I'm never going through that again. Well, they'll all say that until the chemical receptors in your brains have changed and you can't help yourself. And they keep saying, nope, I need that again. I need that fix again because you can't help yourself. And sure enough, he did. And uh, over time, was back in uh, again. And then uh, this time said, I need to go away. And we sent him to Florida and was in a place called Beachway Therapy for 30 days. Didn't talk to him for two weeks. After that time again, had my son back. It was wonderful. And then the therapist at Beachway found him a sober living place called Sober Living in Delray Beach, which we didn't know anything back in 2016, going on 2017 now. I'm sorry, it would have been before that, 2015. We didn't know how bad Florida was, the drug rehab capital of the world. What did we know? You're just struggling parents, which is why when we've set up the Jamie Daniels Foundation site, and on there, when you go to a place called uh, for help on our site, you'll find all the places that have been vetted, not only through Michigan, but throughout the United States and with questions to ask, because so many are in the dark. Where are you going? You're panicking as parents. You just want to get your kid to a place. Luckily, Beachway Therapy was a good place and it's on our site, but there are so many that are not. And they put him in a good place to live called Sober Living. And Chris, who's there, was a wonderful manager of that place where you're on heavy monitor like you're in prison, which kids need to be because you need direction. And where's the money being spent, how much money you're being given while you're living and while you're finding a job. And Jamie did all those things. The only thing I wish that had caught my ear that did not, when his therapist out of Beachway Therapy, who was a good guy, told me the cost of where Jamie was living. It was about $245 a week. And I said, and that doesn't include food. So a lot of parents, you know, you can't afford that. It's a lot of money. You're talking just a thousand to live. And now you're talking food per week, which isn't a lot because they monitor what you're getting. So you're not buying the drugs. But even if you want to join a gym or anything else or need Uber fare or anything, it can add up, right? And the therapist said to me, in Florida, you get what you pay for. That's all he said. I didn't know it was the rehab CD capital of the world. So where Jamie had been there for some seven months and clean and was working for a law firm, wonderfully, they loved him, studying for his LSATs, decided, hey, dad, a friend of mine who I met at a meeting wants me to go over here. It's all covered by insurance. It's only 50 bucks a month. Well, I begged him not to leave, but really not knowing how badly I didn't want him not to leave. But, you know, you tell a 23-year-old, and he says, yo, dad, I got this. I'm good. I'll have more money. I'm clean. And he wasn't a good path until about within a week. And then we find out later that that kid who got him to that place stole his headphones and his laptop and had, even though he didn't admit to it, had patient brokered, meaning I'm sure he got money to bring people that he had met at a meeting like Jamie. He got paid on the side from that house to bring Jamie to live in that house 
And then that house sends Jamie to a doctor from that house who gets paid on the side by that house to a lab who gets paid by that house who built the insurance industry. That's how the patient brokering and the cycle goes round and round because that so-called addiction doctor that that new place sent Jamie to to be tested when Jamie called me and said the doctor put me on a, a different kind of whether Jamie had been on Prozac or, or something else, changed his anxiety meds. And I said, Jamie, you can't go changing anxiety meds midstream. That doctor, and we didn't know later until we found his prescription pill bottles, which the officers sent to us, which were by his bed. Uh, some one that was found was Xanax. It was a generic form of Xanax. What addiction doctor puts a kid, if knowing that he had been on opioids, would prescribe him Xanax? No one would. But to try to go through a law case and find those doctors, and they'll say their notepads were stolen in ESPN E60, did a wonderful doc on Jamie. And Dr. Michael Azadi, whom I wouldn't trust in a million years, who said his pad was stolen and didn't remember treating him, even though they showed him the numbers and insurance that was uh, uh, built for blood tests while Jamie was here that we could prove over Thanksgiving that year that he had signed Jamie's name for blood tests that were done in Florida when Jamie wasn't in Florida on those dates he was here with us. So just the unscrupulous world, which is why the Jamie Daniels Foundation, a year later, a friend said, you need to start a foundation so this doesn't happen to someone else. Actually, that's the very long story of how the foundation, jamiedanielsfoundation.org, started so that others don't wind up where we did, that the questions are on there, the sites are safe on there, and we work with a company here that vets those places that are constantly changing, and I know they're good. Whether they're pricey or not, whether you can afford it, that's another story. But at least you know you're getting somewhere safe and you know the questions to ask. And then when you first shared your story with the public, what kind of response did you get? Because I know that you have been very active in going to different organizations and even on television to be able to share your son's story with everyone to bring that education awareness to addiction. Well, it's cathartic for me, I guess, really. I love talking about Jamie. And, and that's the thing when, when one passes. And it's not so much the same unless it happens young to a mother or father. But it certainly is to anyone who's lost a child. But you have to talk about it. And I love, you know, when someone says, as, as I say when I do my speeches, when someone said, you know, how you doing? It's not like Joey from Friends, how you doing? It's how you doing. And you can feel it. And you can feel the empathy. And that's what it's about. Because empathy is the highest form of knowledge. There's no judgment. We need empathy without judgment. Don't judge what happens. Someone battles cancer. Someone battles a rare disease and loses that battle. It's a wonderful battle. And boy, did they fight. But someone dies from drug addiction. It's like they died in an alley with a needle in their arm. And that's not true. Addicts don't want to be addicts, and we have to spread that word. And it's the shame and stigma of addiction that prevents us from talking about it. It prevented our family from talking about it. When Jamie went to Florida, my family knew he was in Florida, but they thought he was working in Florida, which he was. He was at a law firm, and we'd be on before great things like Zoom were even around or FaceTime was as prevalent as it was back in 2015. So we'd talk, and Jamie would be on the phone with family, and we'd just say he was working in Florida. So to the shock of my family outside of his sister, Arlen, or uh, my ex-wife, my current wife, and her two kids, no one knew what Jamie was doing in Florida. So when I had to call my family and tell them that their, their cousin, their nephew, had passed away, the shock and the anger that they had at me because of my shame of the stigma to share with them was awful. I regret that to this day, and I hope families never go through that because we need to rely on each other. We're not here to see through one another. We're here to see one another through. And that's what it's about in life. And that's where we have to talk with one another and be grateful for every day we have together. And if it ever disappeared, what would you think? 
that is the message that I try to, to send to people that if it's not happening in your house, and hopefully it's not the numbers show it's probably happening two or three doors down, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. The, no one addicts don't want to be addicts, so they take something they shouldn't, and before they know it, they're hooked, or it could be from a surgery. And how many hockey people I've met, and baseball people I've met, and pro athletes I've met, and now the National Football League is, is finally okayed the use in their new CDA, the use of, of marijuana. Not that I'm advocating that, because can it be a gateway to this? Sure, it can, and I wish kids wouldn't do that. And the vaping issues that we're having now, my goodness, it's awful. It can all be a gateway to opioids. But for those on in the National Football League who are stuck on opioids for the pain pills, and are addicted for life. They'd love to be able to at least use marijuana and stay in the league if need be, rather than be on the opioids and perhaps die. And that's what happened ultimately to Jamie. He'd been clean, but when a, a so-called addiction doctor puts him on Xanax, which makes him feel like he's on top of the world again, and everything is okay, and then someone in that unscrupulous house says, here's a pill, and unbeknownst to Jamie, even though he knows he shouldn't have taken it, because I followed up with Chris at Sober Living After, and Jamie knew all the rules, not to take anything. But that Xanax in his brain clicked into those chemical receptors again and said, no, you want more of this. You want more of this now. You're okay. You can handle this now, Jamie. And someone in that house gave him a pill that was unfortunately laced with fentanyl. And the people in that house let him die in the middle of the night and didn't call police until the morning when they could clean up the house from everything that was there. So these are the people you're dealing with in this life. You'd love to say like the Reagans in the 80s and just say no. It's not that easy to say now. So this is what I speak of when I go and do my talks over 100 now, whether it be like yourself on a podcast or public speaking, we'll continue to do so. And that's the another unfortunate part of what we're going through in life now with, with COVID-19 is all the speaking engagements that I have lined up. Because can you imagine all the kids who try to get to meetings now and need people to talk to and are stuck in their homes and probably climbing the walls who are addicted and trying to get out and they can't or trying to get help or trying to find a meeting and hopefully they're doing it virtually or people who just need to come and speak or parents who want to bring their kids and all those things and to put on hold. This is, this, this world is, is so different now. And I pray for, for all those who are not just going through this now and loss of jobs and it's terrible and awful. We're going through the world's change, but all those who are struggling, not only with heart issues, who can't get into hospitals, et cetera. It's, it's just awful. It affects everyone. And I, and I hope what's happening now in the opioid addiction crisis in America doesn't get lost in this because they're also very heavily involved. It's incredibly important, as you said, to have these conversations. So that way, I mean, you not only are educating people, but people are walking this journey not feeling so much alone. So when somebody yeah. like comes out and shares their story, they feel like there's a connection and that there's somebody that they can relate to as well. Yeah, Ashley, you're so right. My goodness, when someone comes up and hugs me, and you can feel that hug when they say, I lost my son or I lost my daughter too, you can feel it. You can feel the hug. You can see it. And I, and I hope when we go through COVID, we're allowed to hug again. Uh, someday we, we can all do that because Lord knows we need them. And yes, that's what is so important because you're not alone. And even when even when my story was first told and back to that shame and stigma, and I was in the midst of writing my book, If These Walls Could Talk, and Jamie said, Dad, wait till you. I remember when I started writing the book, and Jamie was surprised by that. And he said, Dad, why don't you wait till your career is over so you can really slice some people? And I said, Well, that really isn't the objective of the book, pal. But he had a wonderful sense of humor, which is why we ultimately did the roast uh, of Mickey Redmond this past September, the first annual Jamie's Daniel Celebrity Roast. And there will be another, whether it's this August. And if we can't because of COVID, we postpone it for a year later to roast Scotty Bowman. We'll do that. Mm -hmm. But we're raising money to go to 
to build a, a recovery housing unit here in Michigan in Jamie's memory. And as well, we're writing grants um, right now through COVID, we're writing grants for people who need them. And we've written a grant from Michigan State University already through the Jamie Daniels Foundation for a sober living floor in the dorm, in the dorm uh, for recovery coaches, et cetera, $30,000 grant for looking to do that out of the colleges. So this is where the money that we're going to is being raised. But when I started writing the book and Jamie said, wait, whatever, and we started writing it. And then I wrote it and in the midst of that, Jamie passed away. So I knew I had to get it done at some point, but I took three months off, went down to Florida, wrote like crazy, got the book done. And then Craig Custance, the wonderful writer from The Athletic, called me to talk about the book because he had a book coming out too and was with um, Triumph Publishing as well out of Chicago, the same publisher. So we talked all about the book and it was one of those, as I mentioned earlier, when uh, and Craig and I are friends and we hadn't talked about Jane at all in the, in the publicity for the book. Other than in the book, I did write the introduction about Jamie. And even at the time when I wrote it, I didn't talk about the drug addiction because when I finished writing, we still didn't have toxicology reports. But again, even there was a little bit of shame and stigma that I did not write about it. And if there's ever, there's been a second printing, but if I ever decided to change the front of the book, the introduction, I would put more in there. But after talking to me about the book, Craig said, how you doing? And I knew what he meant. And we started talking about Jamie and I talked like I am with you for a long time about Jamie. And he finally said, holy, you know what? We need to tell this story. And he said, are you okay with that? And I was okay with that because A, it was The Athletic, which does wonderful work. And B, because it was Craig. And I said, sure. And he wrote it. And the response to your earlier question a while back was magnificent. And on Twitter and retweeted and people who called who really didn't know, except for close friends and family, obviously knew by that point what had happened to Jamie long told and most around my work did but publicly and it went viral and then ESPN E60 called and they wanted to do a documentary and they delved deep into what happened in Florida and the um, CD side of the recovery businesses as they called the Florida shuffle and it was up for um, the Emmy Award for journalism that year final five I think HBO Sherpas beat it out but I was just honored that Jamie's story was so well told uh, by John Barr who also did the Larry Nassar Michigan State story um, by John Barr and Mike Farrell, who was a, a producer and knew hockey well from Canada and knew me a little bit and told the story so beautifully, um, so honored. And really, that's where it took off. And that, that helped get the message out. And then I was free to speak. And then you start getting calls. And so this is wonderful. And this leads to that. And I can't tell you how many people have called us now and say, you know, you saved my son's life, you saved my daughter's life, or she was here, or he was there playing in a tournament, hurt his arm, I brought him home, didn't want him on pills. And they're now speaking out about it. So that's what matters. That's what it's about. Pay, pay it forward. I, just, I wanted to say about how you talked about the stigma surrounding it. So uh, Ashley and I both, I mean, have personal experience with addiction, substance abuse, seeing it, you know, in, in family and friends. And, you know, at us being 29, 30 years old, I've lost a handful of friends to overdose. And I think right off the bat, people don't really want to talk about when you find out that's, that's why they passed away. These are people that are, you know, the most fun-loving, joyous, kind people. And they, they also feel that embarrassment. They hide kind of that other life from, from everyone around them. After they pass away, you know, it's like if it's a car accident or something, people want to talk about it, and that's topic of conversation. But anything surrounding, you know, addiction, abuse, it's almost like as soon as it's mentioned, it, it just stops. And I mm -hmm. think especially what you're doing is breaking down that barrier and letting people know this is something that has to be talked about, you know. 
um, it's not too late to help these people, even the ones that you don't think need it, maybe need it the most. So just speaking on like your foundation, I think that's just opening such a big door to finally have people converse about this and understand that it is a disease more than anything where people are choosing to live that type of life. And of course, would never have it end their life as well. Right. So. Thank you for that. Thank you. And I'm sorry for your losses. And uh, I could say it to so many people and so many friends of ours who know and so many friends um, that Jamie was hanging with, which is a big reason why he left here and went to Florida because of his own shame and didn't tell a lot of his own friends. Oh, but his friends probably knew and we know many who are still using and some who have stopped. And we congratulate those who have stopped. But we know that it's, it's not easy to stop. It's not, I think quitting smoking is hard. Try quitting this. This is, a, this is a whole other level. And again, where drugs are so readily available, we, we speak of, we could have, you know, you can have the, the Xanax, you can have anything just sitting in your medicine cabinet. You have anything from surgery, Vicodin from years ago, I could have had in the house. And we know when Jamie came and lived at home, we took everything out of the house, including Benadryl. You never knew. And even when Jamie was home and knew he had to be clean, uh, he knew that. But again, addiction takes over. He came home one day and I gave him a random urine test, which would test for all the different types of opioids um, in his system, went into his bathroom and wanted me out of the room. And I said, Jamie, you're in your bathroom. I'm not standing there watching you just pee. When he gave it to me, I said, why isn't this warm? And I found out he had clean urine taped to his leg. That's how desperate he was not to be caught. He loved us. He loved himself, just didn't know how to portray it. And he didn't know enough to truly love himself because his brain said, uh-uh, you're helping me first, pal. You're not helping you. I need this. It takes over. Again, addicts don't want to be addicts. We must have empathy. No one just starts out, hey, give me this pill. I want to be addicted and can't function for the rest of my life. It just happens. And it's like, it's nature versus nurture. My daughter's had her wisdom teeth out and nothing happened to her and she knows enough to take nothing. And if she did, maybe nothing would happen. But for Jamie, boy, it happened quick. So everyone is different. We shouldn't judge them just because it happens. They're, they're not evil people. Our brains all work differently. You know, what kind of message or advice would you give families who are walking a similar journey as you? To talk about it and seek help, get into therapy and get help, get clean and use Jamie's story as an example, if you must see what can happen to a kid who just loved life, loved to laugh, went to school, graduated, wanted to work, and it just happened to him so easily. Maybe loved life a little bit too much, willing to try anything. Jamie always said, Dad, I'm street smart. Your daughter, my sister's book smart. I'm street smart. Well, maybe he wasn't as street smart as he thought he was. Um, see the signs for parents where their kids go to the room and they they just, oh, well, just depressed. Oh, they're just worried about school. They're just staying in the room or their schoolwork's not being done or their, how their, I guess their cleanliness changes. They don't care about things that they used to care about. Their, their anger changes. Jamie could get mean to friends, to me in a heartbeat. And I'd say, who is that? Or he'd talk to his friends on the phone and I'd listen to him. And his friends were probably high too. And I'd hear him get angry, angry with them because he was in the midst of talking to me and yell at them. Say, man, you talk to your friends like that. I wouldn't be friends with you. You spoke to me like that. God, that's how we talk. So just little signs like that. One day, Jamie came home from the summer camp that I mentioned. He was working on staff, as was his sister. They came home together. They wanted to come home for the day. And I said, Jamie, because he had the car. And I said, don't forget, Ireland's got to be back before you. So you've got to drive her back at one o'clock. And it was only 45 minutes away. It wasn't a long drive. 
but you know, and I said, if you're by two o'clock, she had to be back. So at one o'clock I called upstairs and you know, he's not answering and he's just out like a light in his bed. I said, get up. And he yelled at me. I'm not taking her dad. I'm not going, even though he said he would. So I drove Arlen to camp. I didn't know at that time he was probably protecting her knowing he'd taken a pill and got high and didn't want to drive off the road with her in the car. Had sense enough for that. Not sense enough not to take it because your brain said you better take it. I don't want to be sick. That's why addicts don't want to be addicts. But your brain says, you're going to go through the worst flu that you've ever had in your life. We think COVID-19 is bad, and it is. And there's a flu that those who've gone through it, it's just said is awful. Uh, there's this type also. You're going through and you want to don't want to have to go through detox. And you want to feel the sickness that you've never felt in your life. And Jamie had told me, you feel that coming on. You pop a pill because your brain says, I don't want to be that sick again. And he took that, but knew enough, smart enough that moment to say, no, I'm not taking her. I was pissed at the time. I drove her to camp, came back. He was okay later and drove, but it wasn't until a long time later that I realized that's why he didn't want to drive her to camp. So there are signs like that that parents should recognize you can. Jamie was old enough. Could we keep him in rehab? No, if he didn't want to go there. Thankfully, he did. We we're fortunate. But go to counselors. Get people to talk to him. Go to our website, jamiedanielsfoundation.org. In many places throughout the United States, I went and visited Journey Pure in Nashville, which is a wonderful spot. Blue Cross Blue Shield covers that. It's still expensive, but there's a portion that's covered. It's a marvelous place for men, women, detox, on-site. There are so many places I visit in the U.S., so they're all on our site. Check them out. Ask the questions before you go. But sit down as a family with the therapist and know, if not, you could wind up dead. You need help now. And please, I hope people do it. Don't be scared of it. Fight it. Get into it. Live it. You have to. And then you mentioned that you your organization is helping a lot of people, not only in, in our community, but across the nation as well. Where can people find you to be able to donate to your cause? Again, jamiedanielsfoundation.org, uh, J-A-M-I-E-D-A-N-I-E-L-S, jamiedanielsfoundation.org. And uh, they can donate there. And as of now, we're still holding out hope with COVID that we can have the second annual Jamie Daniels Celebrity Roast at Motor City Casino, downtown Detroit, August 29th for Scotty Bowman. If we can't, and it's not safe to do so, we're planning because let's face it, the sponsor dollars that we're going to need, a lot of people won't have the money to donate this year. So we don't know what we're going to be able to do. And if it's better to wait a year, then we'll wait a year. But we had a lot of laughs, raised nearly $300,000, which is all going to, uh, to either colleges or writing grants now through COVID to help those who need help with meetings um, and virtual meetings, et cetera, right now. There will be writing grants this week in cooperation with the Children's Foundation, um, we work with our foundation, and the money that we're in the works now to build a, uh, a long-term, safe, sober community housing center for Jamie's memory here in Michigan, which, um, you know, it can't be for a month or two. People need to stay there as long as they can while finding work, make it affordable, make it safe. It'll be top of the line. We're actually looking to build the first of its kind in the United States with a recovery high school on campus as well. So that's where the money's going to, jamiedanielsfoundation.org. And again, if uh, the second annual roast this time for Scotty Bowman doesn't happen this August, it'll happen in 2021. And it'll be it'll be tough to top last year's with Mickey. It was a wonderful event. It really was. We knocked it out of the park. People had a great time because Jamie loved to laugh. And I, his laugh was infectious. It was wonderful. It was great. And the National Hockey League and the support and the support we have of those coming this year. But who knows what's going to happen with the league. I don't know if it'll be even back playing in August, September. Somehow I doubt it. But if it is, that causes issues. So, so many issues to discuss. Maybe we're better off waiting. I don't know. But if you go to the website, we'll keep people posted uh, again, whether it's this year or next year. And you can certainly donate there and help the cause. We're definitely going to want to take part and see that. If anything else, I want to see how Scotty deals with the 
roasted. So. <laughs> oh, he was. Uh, I got to tell you, Scotty. He'll be. Well, we're going to. Um, you know, Scotty's going to be turning 87 in September, and that was a big thing too. Was to celebrate Scotty's birthday, and we roasted Mickey. Scotty was one of the roasters. Uh, this year, he's being roasted, and Scotty was fantastic. I mean, so sharp. My, my my dad was pretty with it, very much with it. Still funny, great sense of humor. Scotty was unbelievable. So I think Scotty being roasted just has written a book, um, A Life Like No Other, Hockey Life Like No Other, written by Ken Dryden. We'd love to have Ken there too, if we could get him there. And uh, Scotty wrote the book uh, with Ken Dryden. And it's a, it's a wonderful read, A Hockey Life Like No Other, Scotty Bowman, written by Ken Dryden. And if you want to pick up a great read while well, you got nothing else to do, because most of us have nothing else to do right now while we're working from home, um, pick that up. It's a great read. You'll know all about Scotty and what a, a wonderful guy. We had our moments along the way, but I was with Scotty for some time when I first came to Detroit. I learned so much. I mean, playing high school hockey for Mike Keenan and working here with Scotty Bowman and then Mike Babcock and now Jeff Blasio with Ken Holland for so long and now Steve Eisenman. I mean, I'm blessed to be in the hockey world. It's it's an encyclopedia for me every day. So it's great. You'd love it. Scotty, Scotty, be wonderful. I'm definitely going to pick that up. I was going to say, because I we also have your uh, If These Walls Could Talk, your, your book as well. So that's something. Oh, I good. The other day, I just picked it up. I said, oh, now's the time. I got to dive in. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And it's still uh, available on Amazon. And if anybody wants to, or you guys want to get the books to me, if anybody buys them through Amazon that you know, or gets them through you, I'll, I'll sign them for oh. nothing. So just, thank just you. to have it. So if anyone wants to buy it on Amazon, I'll sign them and get them to you. So. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Ken Daniels, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you and your vulnerability in sharing your story to impact so many people in our world, and especially at a time where these stories can bring hope and healing to people who are struggling. Thank you to you both for having me and for what you're doing, too. It's uh, with gratitude. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. We appreciate it. We'll talk with you soon. You got it. It is important to lean in on having these conversations, to share our stories, to allow others who are walking a similar journey to not feel alone. If you or someone you know is battling an addiction, here are free sources for additional information. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Hotline can be reached 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 1-800-662-4357 and the Drug and Alcohol Abuse Helpline at 1-888-506-0600. Thanks for joining us at the For the Good Podcast. We would love to connect with you. Join us on Facebook and Instagram at For the Good Official and our blog at ForTheGood.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Remember, a positive mindset is the beginning of true happiness, not just for the good of the individual, but for the good of the world.